everybody. This is Greg Wareham with Your Mortgage Process. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today. Uh, we have a very special guest today, uh, Mrs. Stephanie Wynn, who's a mortgage loan processor. And she, you've been doing it for how long, Stephanie? About five years. About five years. And what did you do prior to that? I worked at a housing nonprofit. You did. I did. I knew that. Uh, yes, that's where you you borrowed me from. <laughs> that's right. I borrowed, thank you. We borrowed you. We're going to give you back one day, but I don't, maybe not. But let's talk about something really important. Let's talk about Vanessa and the <laughs> Fire Tigers. So Stephanie has a very famous talent show person. Well, yes, Vanessa is my seven-year-old, and at school they're doing a talent show, and mm -hmm. her and her friends have decided to form a dance group called the Fire Tigers. Very nice. And they are doing a dance to Katy Perry's Roar song, and um, we've just been very busy with that this month. Okay. Yep. All right. And what do the costumes look like? Uh, the costumes are representing fire. They're much more fire than tiger for this performance. Mm -hmm. So we've got uh, some skirts made out of red, yellow, and orange tulle, and they have lights in them. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to have different colored tank tops to signif signify fire. So one red, one yellow, one coral, one orange. Very nice. So. Now you could have went with tigers or lions, but you went with tigers. Well, what was it Vanessa's call? It was uh, Kennedy, one of her friends. It was okay. Kennedy's call. Got so. It. so moving forward, as far as the mortgage process is concerned, now you've been a mortgage processor for five years. And, you know, during that time, what have you seen? Well, one of the things I've seen is that a lot of borrowers are very unprepared okay. for the process. So that was one of the things I wanted to go over today is what I would like borrowers to know before they start the mortgage process okay. and how to make it a much smoother experience for them. Okay. So let me help kind of set the table a little bit with sure. it. Sure. So when someone's interested in going out and purchasing a home, the first thing they got to figure out is, all right, is home ownership the right thing for us? Make sure that uh, they speak to a mortgage loan officer, figure out what the costs are going to be, what their payment's going to be. Make sure you have basic affordability. They talk to a real estate agent. Real estate agent shows them houses. They go under contract to purchase a home. Then the attorney becomes involved in the process. And then the loan gets sent into the mortgage loan processors, which, which is where you come into play. Yep. So tell me a little bit about the pitfalls. Well, one of the things that I wish borrowers would understand is that we have to paper trail everything, especially when it comes to assets. Assets seem to be the thing that cause the most headaches for people mm -hmm. because people don't really understand what they do with their money is something that we pay attention to in the process fairly closely. Um, so we need to make sure that we know where their money is coming from mm -hmm. and that we can source everything. So when people are transferring money between different accounts, we have to paper trail all of that. And so some people have five or six different accounts and they love to transfer money between all these different accounts. Mm -hmm. And then they get frustrated when we have to constantly ask for additional bank statements or transaction histories okay. so that we can show that the transfer into this account was money that originated from another account that they own. Basically just showing that they owned the money. Um, and people get frustrated because they think, well, it's my money. What does it matter? Mm -hmm. But mortgage guidelines say that we have to show it. I'm going to go a little deeper on that. All right. So when somebody's buying a house and they're putting down a down payment, they have to show enough money to cover that down payment mm -hmm. plus their closing costs. Yep. 
So as an example, somebody's buying a $300,000 property. They're putting down 20%, which is $60,000. Let's just say for even numbers, the closing costs are $10,000. So it's $70,000 okay. that they need. Mm -hmm. Now, when that loan's being prepared by you to being sent to underwriting, we need to properly document that the person purchasing the property has $70,000. Yep. And if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is if there's multiple accounts and money being moved around from this bank account and this stock account and over here and over there, and it's under my bed, and it's all these different spots, as a mortgage lender, you have to be able to source where all that money comes from. Correct. So when you transfer money back and forth between different accounts, every time that happens, we have to say, what do we need to document? Well, typically we need a bank statement to document where the money came from. Mm -hmm. Some of the additional frustration, not just asking for the bank statement, but what gets borrowers, I think, frustrated even more is when we have to get a transaction history. Mm -hmm. Because let's say the bank statement has already ended for the month and they made the transfer right after the bank statement ended and we don't have time to wait for the next month's bank statement to mm -hmm. be available. Borrowers have to print what we call a transaction history. But there are certain data points that need to be on the transaction history in mm -hmm. order for us to accept it. We have to be able to show a partial account number so we can link it back to the actual statement so we know it's the same account that we have on file. We have to show the account balance so that we can see, well, you know, what's, what's the balance after all these transfers were made. Mm -hmm. We need to have a URL or a website on the bottom or the top of the page somewhere just so, to authenticate it. Okay. And that's like the web address. That's the, the web address. Remember, I'm old. Go slow. <laughs> Um, and there can't be any gaps in dates. So okay. if your bank statement ended on, let's say, March 3rd, then your transaction history has to start March 4th so that okay. there's no gaps in dates. It's okay if it starts earlier and there's overlap, but we can't have any gaps in dates. Okay. So it sounds like it's best if someone knows that they're going to purchase a house. We have someone buying a house. If we can have that money in one or two accounts, it probably – just keep the money there. Let it – season mm -hmm. probably makes the process a little bit easier than having to go back and forth showing where all the different money came from. It does. And it's okay to transfer money from a retirement account or, or from stocks. You just have to be aware that we're going to ask you to mm -hmm. paper trail it and to document it. And if possible, try to get everything done before that month's statement cuts, basically, sure. so that you can provide a statement and you don't have to then provide a transaction history. Because transaction histories, depending on your bank, sometimes it's hard to get all that information onto one document. Sure. And then if it's a retirement account, sometimes they don't give you access to a transaction history. So then it's even more challenging. So if you can keep an eye on the dates of your statement and try to plan accordingly, mm. it makes it a little bit easier. Um, and also, if, if you can get all the money kind of prepped before you put the offer in, we only need two months of bank statement. So depending mm -hmm. on how long your closing process is, we might not need to use the one statement that shows the transfer if we can use the next two statements that come sure. out. So there's a little bit of preparation that if you're aware of it ahead of time, it can make the process a little bit easier. So I had made a statement about money being transferred. I used the term under the mattress, which is basically cash. Mm -hmm. uh, can we use cash? It depends on how much. Okay. So uh, for a conventional loan, we have to source anything that's more than 50% of your gross monthly income, whether mm -hmm. that's a deposit or a transfer. So if you're putting in small amounts that fall under that threshold, typically they don't have to be sourced. Sure. They can't be deposited on the same day. So you can't do multiple cash deposits on the same day. You can't do multiple cash deposits three or four days in a row. Sure. Those are red flags. And then that has to be sourced. Yeah. And I think the whole key with it isn't so much that you know people should ever be 
trying to stack how they're doing that. It's more, hey, if you have a uh, cash job that you're working and you have legitimate deposits that are going in there, all right, well, you can do that up until a certain dollar amount. What if someone wants to bring $20,000 in cash to the closing? Uh, typically, that's not allowed. Um, <laughs> you know, all money has to be sourced. So if it's a gift, right, because gifts are acceptable under mm-hmm. most transactions, as long as we can show where the gift came from, mm-hmm. so we would need a bank statement or a cashier's check or a canceled check from, we call it the donor, the person that gave you the money, mm-hmm. you know, then it can be used. But if they just handed you, you know, a duffel bag full of cash, typically that won't be accepted. I have a great one. Okay. And I'm not sure if I've ever told you this story. Okay. So I was handling a transaction about 10 years ago and went to closing and the buyer of the property came to closing with a uh, old school uh, supermarket bag, brown bag, with $70,000 in cash. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so why can't I use it? Oh, you can't use that. Now, okay. we had sourced the money. We had done all the right things. She, just, she didn't know. Okay. Uh, so, you know, clearly from a cash standpoint, you certainly don't want to, you don't want to use cash, right? You have to be able to source and season all the money that's, that's coming in, in yep. order to use that for your down payment and your closing costs. Yep. Uh, how about income? Uh, well, I guess, what is your question specifically on income? Well, what do you need to verify income? Well, typically we need your pay stubs, about a month's worth of pay stubs, and then your W-2s. Occasionally, we'll also uh, ask your employer to fill out a form, depending on if you're hourly and maybe you work different hours every week mm-hmm. or if you just started a job. Um, so, But pay stubs and W-2s are the typical documents. Okay. So the two most recent years of W-2s, two most recent pay stubs, maybe a written verification of employment. Occasionally. How, and yep. that's for somebody that works for an employer, right? Yes. So W-2 employee. Self-employed is a little bit more complicated. Okay. Um, it also depends on the regulations that are in place at the time. As we know, when COVID hit, uh, Fannie and Freddie got a lot stricter with their document requirements, and we had to get additional information from self-employed mm-hmm. borrowers. Right now, we really need uh, two years of tax returns. Okay. Occasionally, though, we could ask them for a profit and loss statement. We could ask them for business bank statements. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on which program mm-hmm. they're applying for and what's going on with the guidelines. And when you say two years of tax returns, really what we're looking for is the two most recent years of full tax returns. Correct. Not page one and two, but page one through 14, if that's how many pages there are. Yeah, we want all the schedules because the schedules is really what gives us the information. That's where you have a Schedule C. If, if you file that, if you have any rental properties, you know, they're on Schedule E. So we really want all the information that's contained in the other pages of your tax return. Sure. And then if you own a company, right? So if you're an LLC, a uh, corporation, subchapter S corp, then we need those business returns as well. Business returns, uh, K-1s if you have any. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, it really depends on the particular financial situation of that borrower and what program they're applying for. Sure. Now, when you look at, we talked about in uh, assets, we talked about income, what else? Credit's a big one. Okay. Um, you know, I, I try to tell borrowers, when you after you apply for the mortgage, we really don't want much to change. We don't want your job to change. Ideally, we want you to stay at the same job that we approved you with. Mm-hmm. We don't want your credit to change. We don't want you applying for any new loans. We don't want you closing out any credit cards. Mm-hmm. We don't want anything that's going to drastically adjust your credit score. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want you opening any new credit. Uh, 
Borrowers get approved based off of a debt-to-income ratio, mm-hmm. and all of your liabilities, your credit cards, your loans, all of that is taken into consideration. Some people have tighter debt-to-income ratios mm-hmm. than others, meaning that if they take out a new credit card, they may no longer be eligible for the mortgage. Sure. So we don't really want anything to change. Um, and so we try to let borrowers know, you know, don't open up a new credit card to finance your furniture purchases. Wait until after you close or put it on a current card that you already have. Okay, that makes sense. And then um, you had mentioned debt to income ratio. And then for the, the listeners out there, I just want to explain what that is. Sure. So when you're trying to qualify for a mortgage, only a certain amount of your money that you have going out as compared to gross money coming in can go towards your housing payment and go to your overall debt load on your credit report. And just to give everybody an example. So the front end ratio, which is how much of a house you can afford, you look at the principal, the interest, the taxes, the monthly homeowners insurance, Mm -hmm. monthly homeowners association dues, if applicable, you add all that up and you divide it by the monthly gross income. And that gives you a ratio. That's one ratio. The second ratio is what's called the back end ratio. Now you add up the principal, the interest, the taxes, the homeowner's insurance, the potential HOA fees, plus any other minimum monthly payments that show up on your credit report. Now you add all that up, you divide it by the gross monthly income, and you come up with a different ratio. Correct. So to your point, Stephanie, you have to have a certain parameter to be able to qualify for that. Yep. So, you know, if once folks apply, if they could try to keep things the way they are, it's helpful. You know, obviously, if things change, we can work with it, but it requires getting additional information from a borrower or clarity. And so, you know, borrowers tend to get frustrated if you ask them for too many documents. So we try to streamline things as much as possible and try to go back to borrowers as few times as possible. So if borrowers are aware a little bit better of how yeah. the process works, I think they would put themselves in a situation where we might not have to go back to them for so many requests. Yeah. I mean, so if someone's out there, they understand what their or your mortgage process is then it makes the transaction just go that much more efficiently. Yep. And, you know, the guidelines are federal guidelines. They have nothing to do with us Mm. as an individual bank. Um, The guidelines are pretty similar across the board. So unfortunately, we don't have much control over them. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's not a lot we can do to waive, you know, a particular guideline. It's just it's a federal guideline and we have to follow it. You bring up a really good point with that. And you had mentioned Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac earlier. Mm -hmm. And just so everyone knows who's Fannie Mae and who's Freddie Mac, right? You You may have heard these names kicked around. Behind the scenes, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buy a lot of these what are called conventional conforming mortgages. And that frees up new capital to be able to lend to new people. So they have guidelines. So you have Fannie Mae guidelines, you have Freddie Mac guidelines. Someone could be doing an FHA mortgage, which Mm -hmm. has a different set of guidelines. A VA mortgage has a different set. Uh, Portfolio lending, which can be jumbo mortgages and different unique products, those have different guidelines. So, you know, each one of these situations, you kind of have to cater and structure on your end to make it all work and working with the potential home buyer. That sounds like fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sometimes. So what are, you have a list. Stephanie has a list, everybody, of things that she's trying to get across. I guess I, I like notes. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, or I guess give some more information on, was gifts. So it's okay if one of your family members is going to give you a gift, but depending on if you're going conventional or FHA, will determine what type of documentation you need mm-hmm. to properly document that gift and what type of paperwork we have to ask you for. Mm-hmm. So if you're going FHA, we need the donor, the person that's giving you the money, to provide not only a copy of the check, their gift check, but also Mm -hmm. their bank statement. 
And I find that a lot of times some of your older donors do not want to provide their bank statements. They don't want their children or their grandchildren knowing what's in their account. Um, And sometimes that can be a little problematic because it's a document that uh, the federal government, FHA, requires in order for us to use that money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if borrowers know this ahead of time, they can properly, I guess, have that conversation with whoever is giving them the gift and just make sure that they're comfortable with the document requirements. Mm -hmm. If you're going conventional, so Fannie or Freddie, then right now we don't need the donor's bank statement. We just need a canceled check from them. Mm-hmm. So sometimes borrowers are between, they could go either loan program, right? Mm-hmm. But if you know we, we know that they're getting a gift, that might be a conversation to have up front with the borrower and then the potential donor to mm-hmm. see what the donor is comfortable with yeah. so that we don't run into document issues later on. Because if we can't properly document a gift, unfortunately, we can't use it, even if it's already in the borrower's bank account. Sure. So you bring up a good point, just kind of recap on that. So if you're doing a conventional mortgage, you're doing a Fannie Mae type of mortgage. Now, if you're getting a gift, you need a gift letter. Mm-hmm. And then you have the gift letter, which we provide. And it just gets filled out. Or you provide and it gets filled out. And then we need a copy of the check. Yep. And then we need proof that the funds went into their account. Correct. Nice and easy. Mm-hmm. If it's an FHA mortgage, well, the rules change a little bit. So now we need a copy of that check. We need proof the money went into their account. But in addition to that, we need the gift letter. And in addition to that, you also need a copy of the bank statement from the donor. Yes. And not just like one page. The whole thing. The whole thing. So with all the transaction history. Yeah. So that's important to define up front. That way, you know, you're not in an uncomfortable situation as someone looking to buy a house. Because I can see how people would be apprehensive to do that. I I totally get it when that happens. But unfortunately, it puts everyone in a kind of a tricky situation because um, usually when borrowers get gifts, it's a you know, several thousand dollars, and it's not always easy to find someone else to give you a gift if that particular donor doesn't want to provide the documents. Sure. So. Okay. So now kind of set the stage. So now you have you have assets, you have income, you have any potential gift in there. Yep. What else do you need, Stephanie, to send everything to an underwriter? Well, home insurance is an important one. Okay. Um, it's important that we have proof that the borrower has gotten an insurance policy for the unit that they're purchasing. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily have to uh, pay the premium up front. I know a lot of people are concerned about that. They don't want to pay for a policy until they close on the house. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. They don't have to. We let them pay it at closing if they choose. Mm-hmm. But we do need to see that they have a policy in place that will take effect on the day of closing. We also need to see that they've sent their initial deposit check in. Mm -hmm. So uh, EMD or your earnest money deposit is the initial deposit. It's a good faith, basically, deposit that you uh, put into your initial contract saying, okay, um, I'm going to give you, let's say, $5,000 after you accept this contract, after you're done with attorney review, and then I'll bring the rest of the money to closing. Mm -hmm. We need to document that you actually made that $5,000 initial deposit. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing where you get into assets. And if you can possibly try to send the check before your statement's going to end Mm -hmm. so that when your statement's available at the end of the month or the middle of the month, whenever it cuts, we can see not only the check uh, leaving your account, we can see your new account balance and mm-hmm. make sure that you have enough cash to close. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, yep. so we need that the homeowner's insurance prior to closing, but that can yes. come a little later in the in the process. Yep. The earnest money check, we got to be able to prove that that money's been receded. Yep. Uh, what else do you need to go to underwriting? Well, for the initial underwriting review, really we need income, we need assets, we need the purchase contract. Okay. If we have any of this other information, it's great. 
because it means that uh, the underwriter has more to review, which means we're going to have less conditions that we have to get afterwards. Makes sense. Um, so if we have the initial deposit and all that documentation, perfect. If they're getting a gift and we have that documented, great. If not, these are things that we can get after the initial review. Um, title and appraisal are some third-party items that are also needed. But again, they're not needed to do the initial submission. Okay. But we do need them before we can submit for final review and get the clear to close. Okay. All right. So we send a, we're sending a loan into underwriting. We have the income. Mm -hmm. We have the assets, potential gift. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, and we send it into underwriting. Yep. And at that point in time, we're going to order an appraisal on the property. Yep. Correct? Mm -hmm. Now, the appraisal is something that we handle from a lending standpoint, right? The consumer doesn't have to figure out who's gonna do the appraisal on their property. Correct. So we'd handle that internally. Now you've sent everything to underwriting, underwriting's gonna review everything and it comes back with a mortgage approval. Mm -hmm. Now on that mortgage approval is a an additional list of documents. Yes. And that's really where that homeowner's insurance will come into play. Yeah. What are some of the other items that you see on there, Stephanie? Well, your typical items are going to be your initial deposit, your home insurance, your title, your appraisal. If when we pull their credit report, there are any other credit inquiries, meaning mm -hmm. other companies have pulled their credit report, then we need a credit explanation letter, basically just letting the underwriter know why they pulled their credit. Were they just mortgage rate shopping? Did they open any new credit? Because what we talked about earlier with your debt to income ratio, opening new credit does affect your debt to income ratio. So we need to make sure that there's no additional credit that we need to be aware of that maybe didn't show up on your credit report when we pulled it, but is sure. there now. Mm -hmm. So... So now when we have all those uh, that information, so we have an uh, approval, now we've had the appraisal come in. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that you see on a purchase contract is the two important dates are the commitment date yep. and the closing date. Yep. So what do we need to get the commitment? Well, typically you need the conditional approval, that's mm -hmm. the initial review from the underwriter, and then the appraisal to come in. And then typically the commitment uh, can be generated at that point. All right, bam, we got that one <laughs> off the list. Commitment's <laughs> issued, everyone's happy. And from a consumer standpoint, so you understand what the commitment means, it basically means that the bank has reviewed, or your mortgage lender has reviewed everything. They've looked at income, assets, they've looked at the appraisal, they said, hey, you know what? This transaction is a solid transaction, here's your mortgage commitment. So we have a mortgage commitment, then we start getting additional documentation. You know, the timeline is really not up to us on a lot of these transactions. It's up to everyone else that we're working with. It's up to the borrower to get us their documents. It's up to the attorneys to order title and have that come in. It's up to the appraisal company to get the appraisal report to us. So sure. if everyone is working efficiently and getting everything ordered when the initial contract is accepted, mm -hmm. you know, we can close in a few weeks. But when folks are delayed in getting us their documents sure. or they don't respond quickly, um, you know, then the process takes a little bit longer. So sure. if, if you have a short closing window, it's super important to stay in touch with your mortgage processor and to try to get them everything within 48 hours or so after it's been requested, if possible. Some things like the initial deposit check, you're waiting on someone to cash it, right? Sure. Your attorney or the seller's attorney. Um, so you don't have a lot of control over that, but things that you do have control over, we know you need to write the initial deposit check. We know you need to get home insurance. Those are all things that you can start working on fairly quickly sure. so that everything is set up and when everything comes in, it can just go back to the underwriter fairly quickly. And another thing along those lines that becomes important in that or is the interest rate. Yes. It's the interest rate lock-in. Yes. Right? So interest rate locks 
are time sensitive. Mm -hmm. So if you lock an interest rate in for a 30 day time frame, and as an example, you lock something in on April 1st, it's got to close on, or you're locked in for 30 days and that rate expires on the 30th, Mm -hmm. 30 days. So once you get to that 30th day, well, if we're not closed on the transaction, then we may have to extend the interest rate. And in extending the interest rate, there could be an additional cost passed to the consumer. Correct. We're doing it. So we just want to make sure that everyone's kind of on the same page right out of the gates as to what we're trying to accomplish. Yep. So backtracking a little bit for the to the commitment. We have the commitment. Now mm-hmm. we're getting some additional documents, mm-hmm. homeowner's insurance, title. Uh, anything else that you see that comes up on a mortgage commitment? that we need to send it back to underwriting? Um, You know, it really does depend on the individual situation. Sometimes we do need a written verification of employment, like we spoke about. Um, Other times we need a verification of rent. So if someone hasn't been at their, um, haven't been renting at their particular unit for very long, sometimes the underwriters want additional information on that. Or if some late showed up in their history, we might need some additional information on that, whether they're renting or whether they own and have a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Any lates on your housing payment isn't a great um, indicator sure. <laughs> that you're going to pay on time for a new mortgage company. So we always want to get clarity, a letter of explanation. Letters of explanation are really helpful for explaining a situation. And many underwriters will accept that to explain something that could potentially look negative, mm. um, but they're willing to, you know, compensating factors, basically. Sure. So it's Those about communi- communication, so it doesn't yep. preclude someone from obtaining a mortgage. It's nope. just trying to understand the whole picture exactly. so we can get everything done and get everything facilitated. Yep. So now you have all those items are on the commitment. You gather everything, and you're mm-hmm. sending it back to underwriting for the... Well, ideally, for the clear to close. Oh, clear to close. That's <laughs> the one everyone wants to hear. So now you're cleared for a closing. Yep. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we as the bank are satisfied with your application. We're willing to lend you the money. And now we just need to pick a closing date and have you, you know, show up, sign all the paperwork and officially take ownership of the house. Uh, and that's when all the excitement starts, yes. right? Now they own their house. Yep. So yeah, when you're when you're cleared for a closing, we send everything to our closing department. Yep. And then the closing department works in conjunction with us and with the home buyer and with the attorney's office and the title company to really kind of coordinate Mm -hmm. the time and put together the paperwork that's going to be needed. We send the paperwork then over to the title company or the attorney. They print it on their end. They balance what's called the closing disclosure, which are really kind of the final numbers on everything. Mm -hmm. And then we have a closing. Yep. I'm going to backtrack for one second because this is important from a consumer standpoint. Mm -hmm. So there's a piece of paper or several pieces of paper that really it's critical that they get signed prior to closing. They have to from a compliance standpoint. And it's called your preliminary closing disclosure. Mm -hmm. So a title company is going to work with the title or a title company is going to work with the closing department and the attorney to put together what's called that preliminary closing disclosure. And that goes, and what is the closing disclosure, right? It reinforces the rate and what Mm -hmm. the costs are going to be on the loan, how much money you're going to need at the loan, what are the terms of the loan. Mm -hmm. And that form, we want to get that form out as quickly to a potential home buyer so we have a chance to review it with them and go through everything in detail. And then from a compliance standpoint, that document has to be signed three business days prior to closing. Yep. So it's not as if we send the documents and, hey, we're going to a closing. There's a process of review with Mm -hmm. the consumer to make sure everyone's on the same page prior to that. 
Correct. To make sure that they're comfortable with the terms, to make sure that they understand, you know, the financial burden that they're taking sure. on. Um, that's why they have three days to review and to, you know, request any changes if they, no one wants them to feel pressured to sign something. You sure. know, that that's a, a critique, right, from yeah. a few years ago in the mortgage industry. Yeah. Um, and so that this rule was put in place to make sure that no one feels pressured, everyone's comfortable and understands uh, what they're taking on. You know, again, it just comes down to communication with everybody that's yep. involved. It comes down to the overall mortgage process and understanding start to finish what people need up front, how that's gonna flow through, how things look on the back end so everyone can accomplish what we're trying to do, which is to have somebody in a house. Yep. Now, do you have anything else on your list, Stephanie? No, that was really it. You know what? I'm good. Let's go to a quick break. Okay. And we'll pick up in a couple of minutes. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Steph. Thanks. Thank you again for listening today, everyone. Uh, this week's episode of Your Mortgage Process is actually going to be sponsored by Your Mortgage Process and Greg Wareham. We really want to extend our services because we want to give back to the community and also support some of the amazing organizations that are uh, out in our area trying to provide value to everyone. So please let us know if we can be any, any assistance. And again, thank you for listening. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, a couple things came up at the break. The first one was the texture of Nick's hair. Nick is the producer. <laughs> I mean, so the hair goes to the left. It goes to the right. I mean, it really looks good, Nick. How do you how do you pull that off? Do you use a blow dryer? <laughs> yeah, so a little bit of a blow dry. The product's really important, having the correct product. I've been through tons of them over the years. So Now, is that a pomade that you use? It's, a, it's definitely a palm. So okay. uh, uh, it's uh, Ruzel, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, my barber is like a big, big advocate for that brand. So okay. Yeah. So there's no uh, blow dryer involved. Just uh, I saw a lightly blow dryer. I said it, it needs to have a little bit of a wetness uh, mm -hmm. for texture, but other than that, a little bit of a like light dry okay. look. Well, I blow dry my hair first before I apply the gel. We Cap talked. Did we Captain talk America about that look. last week? That's I think right. the Captain America <laughs> looked great. Hundred <laughs> percent. So we were talking. Stephanie and I were talking about a personal experience that she had when she was getting her mortgage. Stephanie, you want to speak a little to that? It's about gift money. Sure. So one of the things that happened with myself and my husband, I wasn't in the mortgage industry at the time, and something that can come up, and I forget that most people don't understand this, is that if one spouse is on the mortgage but the other spouse isn't then you could potentially have a gift between spouses. So for example, when we applied for our mortgage, we did it just in my husband's name. However, my savings account is what we used as our joint savings account, sure. but it technically only had my name on it. So you had all the money. I had most of the money, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I naturally- You're quite the catch. <laughs> I, I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> Um, naturally, I transferred the money to him right. in preparation for closing, and the mortgage processor told me that it was a gift, and I had to document it. And I said, "Well, what do you mean it's a gift? It's not a gift. I'm, you know, it's our money. I'm just moving it over to his account for closing." And she explained that in the mortgage industry, because he is not on the bank statement with me, um, and he is the only one on the mortgage, that it's considered a gift, even though we're married. So. Mm -hmm. Um, spouses can be gift donors, and some people don't understand that if only one spouse is on the mortgage and the other spouse has Stephanie, the money. I have a joint account. 
I'm on it. My wife's on it. What do you mean account, I'm giving her a gift? It's a joint well, account. Well, if you have a joint account, then it's not considered a gift. Okay. It's only considered a gift if both, if it's not a joint account, right? The account's just in one person's name, okay. and that person isn't on the mortgage for whatever reason. Could you potentially need any documentation justifying a joint account? No, I'm taking all the money. It's a joint account, but, it, but I'm um, using it all for closing. Well, for a conventional loan... Yeah. Typically, no, you don't need any documentation on it. For okay. an FHA loan, though, you would need what's called an access letter. So okay. basically, if it was a joint account and both parties aren't on the mortgage, then the party that's not on the mortgage has to sign a letter just stating that the other person on the bank account has full access to the funds. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So. All right. Yep. So, all right. So now we've closed. Coming back to closing on everything. What happens after that? And I, I'll, I'll take over a little on sure. this. So once a mortgage transaction closes... It the next process is what's considered post closing, mm -hmm. right? And how do I possibly get my statement? What happens from here? So when the loan is closed, when I look at a lot of lenders service their own mortgages. So what does that mean? That means you continue to make the payment to the bank or the lender that you close the transaction with. Mm -hmm. So that's one avenue. Something else may happen where your loan gets sold to another lender. Now you've closed, hey, I closed with ABC Mortgage Company. Why do I not have to pay XYZ Mortgage Company now? Well, mm -hmm. that's part of the process. Sometimes companies sell the servicing rights and you'd yep. be paying to a different company. So once your loan is being handled by a servicer, if you have any questions about payments or access, online access, you know, that's something that's going to be more handled by the mortgage servicer. And that mortgage servicer isn't necessarily the company that you closed the loan with. Now, a lot of companies, again, they service their own loans, so you, you're paying them, but everyone's going to reserve, all mortgage companies are likely going to reserve the right to be able to sell the servicing if they, if they had to in the future. Correct. Uh, from there, you're probably going to receive, if you're working with really strong mortgage people, you're probably going to receive check-ins in the future to make sure that everything's going well with the house, mm -hmm. to make sure that you don't need anything else. And really at the end of the day, you know, we talked about communication a lot and we had talked about relationships mm -hmm. a, a lot. You know, everything's geared in the mortgage process or in your mortgage process to be able to try to help the consumer, right? This is really about the buyer mm -hmm. because you're buying what's gonna be the biggest investment for most people ever in their life. Correct. And you're gonna borrow the most amount of money that you're likely ever gonna borrow in your life. Yeah. So this really needs to be handled in a very relationship-oriented fashion, high level of communication, because at the end of the day, everyone who's involved in the process, especially the home buyer, wants to feel good. Go enjoy yes. your new house, right? Yeah, they want to feel good and they want to feel comfortable yeah. with what's going on and feeling like that you know they're in control of the process. Um, just making sure that everyone is on the same page and a high level of communication is important. Sure. Well, you as always do a fantastic job, <laughs> Stephanie. Thank now, you. Stephanie's also, she handles all of our charitable work. Yes. So if there's, we've done different things with backpack. What are some of the things that you've done? Um, well, we have done a backpack drive. So gathered backpacks and different school supplies and giving them to some of the local organizations in town that work with yeah. kids, school-aged kids. Um, we've also done things around food and food insecurity. Um, so anything that 
you know, can get our name out into the community, we're really willing to um, get involved in and, you know, let folks know that um, we're here and that, you know, we yeah. want to be involved. We, we love being involved in the community. It's yep. probably a much better way to put it. Yep. And Stephanie, you've always done an outstanding job. You probably come in and talk to me every other week about some <laughs> new event that we need to do that really helps the community. And I want you to know I appreciate that. Uh, and and we really enjoy it. So if there's anyone out there that's listening, that's in our marketplace, yep. uh, we're in the state of New Jersey. We're based out of uh, Homedale, New Jersey. We'd love to be involved with different uh, events and community things to try and help and give back to our community. Yes, definitely. So is there anything else that you have to say, Stephanie? You know, I don't think so. I think we covered the process pretty well. It's a challenging process in general because a lot is being requested from you. But I always try to make it as, you know, give people as few headaches as possible during it. That's right. my goal. So I did breeze a little bit over the mortgage process uh, to kind of get to your piece on everything today, Stephanie. But I'd also encourage everyone to check out our YouTube channel. We did a 12-part comprehensive series on the mortgage process, breaking everything down into little three-minute clips so people can go on. You don't have to watch the whole thing, but you may find something in there that's important to you, whether or not you're buying a home, you're selling a home, you're in the mortgage industry, you're a real estate agent. Like there's different things in there that could be pertinent for for different people. So I would encourage everyone to check it out. Yeah, I think that sounds great. And I think there seems like a lot of valuable information there. So uh, folks, you should definitely check it out. Well, thanks again, everyone, for joining us this week. We look forward to catching up with you next week. We have a new guest next week. This is going to be a really good one. Make sure that you check it out. Not that yours wasn't great, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, everybody. Bye. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.